I recommend people that want to come into this industry come in for the love and and, and the desire to make change, not for the money and and not for the glory. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week is someone who's made an astonishing impact in a short period of time. I first met River at a hack train event in 2016 and was amazed by the passion and energy he brought to the transport industry. Since then, he's turned hack partners into an innovation powerhouse. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas. <laughs> well, River, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Now, you've been on an unusual journey to a career in public transport. Would, um, would young River have expected to end up working in rail and bus? Uh, absolutely not. Um, you, you could, you know, a decade ago, you know, bearing in mind I'm now nearly six years into this journey, a decade ago, if you said to me I would spend six years in rail and, and bus, I, I would have laughed you out the, out the window. You know, I would have said, okay, if I'm running like an Uber, you know, I've got some sort of app and I've got loads of connections, yada, yada. And somehow I can control the buses and, and, the, tra- and the trains using my app or whatever. I would have said probably that. But if you said to me, you'd be working hand in hand with bus operators, train operators, and, you know, the network rail, the infrastructure owner, you know, every single day delivering very, very different kind of products compared to that idea, uh, I would have said absolutely not. <laughs> Because your background is entirely in technology, innovation. You know, t- how, how, how did this happen? How did you get here? And what were you trying to yeah. do when you got here? Um, what I was trying to do was um, actually just run accelerator programs with startup companies. You know, so I had run my own company for a couple of years. That kind of um, blew up, didn't go well. And I, got, I ended up getting hired by Lee Strafford, um, who ran ADV Ventures for a bit. Um, Lee basically had set up Dot Forge at the time, and he needed someone to run the accelerator program with him. You know, and that was basically find startups, negotiate the deals, run the program, help them fundraise, etc. So, you know, I I was basically on a train every day for about for about six months, basically going around the country finding the best tech companies to invest in in the UK um, as part of this program, and that's how I ended up just spending so much time on a train. You know, but I think in that six-month period, about one-third of my life was on a train. <laughs> you know, in mornings and evenings, and and you know, I, I saw everything that you can imagine as as a as a commuter would, right? Uh, leaves on the line, trespassing, cows on the tracks, you know, um, trees falling over, um, you know, drivers feeling sick, and he has to go off and get a replacement. You know, you name it, I went through it, and I just got fed up, and I decided, you know what, someone needs to do something about it. And I, I ran, I ran a hackathon on, on, you know, on a train to solve problems for, for train operators and, uh, you know, and the like. And I, it was only supposed to be a one-off, just kind of, you know, spur some, spur some industry innovation, spur some motivation, and let them just get on with it. But we saw that there was actually a lot of demand for a, um, an organization like ours to facilitate. Um, tech and facilitate rail basically you know so that discussion that conversation and 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 the negotiations etc so and here i am basically five and a half six years later you know still in the industry uh you know i've been in rail more than i've been in tech which is really frightening to hear (laughs) 
and I was blown away by the the energy you brought to those early events. Um, you obviously one of the things about running accelerators and hackathon events is you get exposure to huge numbers of different industries. What's different about transport, and what's the same compared to other sectors that you've got experience of? Yeah. So you know, I've done. A, I've looked at health. I've looked at finance. Um, you know, there, there have been like the. I would say outside of rail, there'd be the two other two industries that I've done a bit of work in. I would say what's what's different. Um, you know, I would say there's a lot that's similar. You know, in terms of um, fear of change and you know big big incumbents that basically control large data sets or large or have large market shares that make it challenging. Um, you know, I would say what is mainly different is. You know, in industries like health and finance, you actually uh, you you do have more more options, right? So, you know, as much as the NHS is branded as this one big encompassing um, bureaucracy, really, it's made up of you know hundreds of hospitals, thousands of GP practices, and you know um, hundreds of research universities, etc. So, as an entrepreneur, you can sell to you can provide a service to any one of these entities and and do a reasonably good job you know, in terms of scaling your business like that. Whereas in rail, you know, really you have about 21 customers, you know, 22 customers, and that's really it. You know, it doesn't, the market doesn't really get bigger, you know, if you're selling to train operators or if you're selling to network rail. If you're selling to network rail, you really just have one customer. Yes, we've got five regions and, and 14 routes, et cetera, but really still, you know, they largely buy from the center, um, you know, new technologies, et cetera. Um, so that's, I would say, the big difference is that, you know, you've got basically a handful of customers that you work with compared to um, hundreds or, or thousands in, in health or finance um, that you can work with. You know, and at least in finance, you can also go directly to the consumer um, for a lot of different technologies. And yes, you can do that for the same way in rail or in bus around ticketing. But, you know, anytime you want to improve the operations of the existing market, where a lot of the opportunity is you have to work with the existing incumbents or you have to deploy that yourself, right? I.e. you have to deploy a bus service yourself, you know, which is, which is quite a challenge. Um, you know, which, you know, I know, I know you've obviously partnered with bus, bus operators, coach operators kind of help make that happen. Um, so I'd say that's, what's different. You, you've got very little room to maneuver in rail and bus in terms of your, your customer base. And does that constrain innovation in the sector, do you think, or not? Mm. Uh, it sadly it does, you know, like, let's face it, it does, right. When you've only got a handful of players, um, it does because it's not just the companies, it's the people inside the companies as well. Right. And as soon as you might have person A, um, who just isn't interested in, in new tech or innovation because, you know, um, they've got a day job to run. Right. But everyone in their organization goes to them to be able to do innovation because that's what their title is. Um, it might not be innovation, but it might be like it director or like CIO, and, you know, IT director and CIO is very different than innovation. But because, you know, because all of it is tech, they, you know, it gets penciled, it gets shoved in or pigeonholed in. And and that person may or, not, may or may not be interested. And if they're not interested, then there's no one else in the organization to discuss it with. And then you're just stuck. That's it, right? And and that organization might make up 10, 20, 30% of market share of UK bus or UK rail. And and all of a sudden, they're, they're, not, they're not applicable. They're not available to you. Um, so, you know, it's, but at the same time, you know, there's a converse effect, which is if that person does see innovation as their role and really is pushing it, you know, as part of their day job and their forward thinking, then, 
they've got a lot of power and a lot of kind of like, you know, control to make really good change happen. So, it, you know, ultimately it's down to the people you have, not just the role, but the people you have. And that can actually um, um, make innovation much easier. Um, although having said that, I've not really seen that being the case in in rail or bus. You know, I, I've seen more, more of it being, you know, how innovation really happens, I would say, is when someone on the front line wants change because they deal with the problem day in, day out, and they've decided that they'll spend some time making that change happen. You know, so like an ops manager or a customer experience staff member or station manager or, you know, something like that. So, you know, really at the roots and the, the front lines of, of transport is where I see the change happening, um, less so at the center. And do you think part of that is, I mean, you mentioned it's about the type of people, and I said at the start that you've got an unusual an unusual journey into the transport industry. Um, should it be so unusual? I mean, you, your background is uh, computer science, you're a developer yourself. You know, should we have more people that look a bit like you um, in the transport industry? Do you meet other people like you as you go about what you do? Yeah, um, absolutely. We, we, we do need it. Um, that's, it's the whole reason we run Hack Train is to try and kind of open doors into the transport sector. Um, you know, that's what Hack Train is. Ultimately, it's a gateway. You know, whether that door be starting your own company, becoming a freelance industry, or, or getting a job at the likes of, you know, Trainline, which a lot of our hackers have ended up working at, or Network Rail, you know, or with a bus company or train company, etc. You know, the, the industry does need more. Um, digital and tech innovators, you know, and all walks of them, not just entrepreneurs, but, but people that are happy to work in one of these companies. And, and you know, um, basically, you know, ultimately it's time, right? And, you know, as, an entre- as, a, as a tech innovator, would I want to spend my time in fintech or, or, or rail tech? You know, and how they weigh that up is, well, um, you know, where can I have the biggest impact? Where can I make money? And where can I have the most amount of learning? You know, so th- those are the, ultimately the three things that most people will think about, you know, in terms of like career, et cetera. And if rail just can't offer that, uh, you know, to a good enough or comparable standard, then obviously people are just going to go to the other industry. So, you know, the, the whole game is trying to level, make rail an equal playing field um, in terms of opportunity and impact. So that way it attracts these type of people and these people stay. I'm interested the train line is, is, a, is a place that people do tend to go to and through. Um, is, are there other companies or is it really just that one that is a, a, a pathway for people to develop transport skills with tech skills? Uh-huh. Uh, good question, actually. You know, I think train line does a fantastic job of, of, you know, and it is a tech company. You know, it's not really a real company. It never really sees itself as a real company. Obviously, it operates in the rail market. Um, but it, it really sees itself as like a skyscanner does, you know, in terms of ticket retailing, et cetera. So it behaves like a tech company as a result, and it's an easy way through, you know. So, uh, you know, so I would say Trainline is probably like a very good middle ground between tech and rail, although it probably leans more towards tech than, than rail. You know, other organizations, um, I, I, would, I would actually be pressed to say, to, to say which ones because I don't think there are many. You know, naturally, we are one, um, you know, in, in the UK at least, you know, but there, are, there aren't enough rail tech startups and, and bus tech startups, et cetera, you know, at a big scale. You know, there are some really good ones that I know that are maybe 10, 15, 20 employees, but, you know, you'd be hard pressed to say what is a, a rail tech company with 200 employees that, that acts like a, more like a tech company, you know. You know, we've got, we've got some that are traditional, you know, rail tech suppliers, but I would say they're, 
a bit more kind of old guard as opposed to kind of like, you know, new guard. So if you could wave a magic wand and solve, every, change anything about the way that the bus and rail industries work to make it possible mm. for that culture of innovation and change to develop, what would you do? What would, the, what would be the things mm. you'd do? What, what would your magic wand point at? Yeah, good, 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 good question, Thomas. Um, you know, I think, you know, magic wand, right? So this is like, you know. Yeah, you've got a really powerful magic wand, anything you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fairy tale magic wand, Harry Potter magic wand. Um, I would say, you know, it, it, one is empowerment of frontline staff to be able to innovate. So part, partly that is giving them a bit of time, you know, the ones that want it, right? So giving them a bit of time to basically look to the future and then um, fun, changing how funding is done. We need to get rid of this whole, we need multiple boards to approve funding and everyone needs to sign it off and it takes two, three, four, five, six months to make that happen, et cetera. You know, it needs to be way, way quicker just as just as passengers can't wait for the rail service to improve, you know, over the next 10 years, we can't, um, you know, we need, we need that change to happen today. Oh, to do that, we also need to be able to deliver change today. So when someone comes to, you know, when someone has a good idea, that pathway to going from idea to getting it funded and trialed needs to be as short as humanly possible. You're talking about a week or two, you know, two, three months, which is what it takes right now. It's just too painful from a, from a, a time scale perspective. You lose momentum, you lose interest, and you lose energy, um, you know. And then we need to stop asking everyone what they think. I think, you know, the industry dies through consensus, you know. It slows itself down through consensus. We need everyone to say yes. Actually, no, we just need the right people to say yes, right? Which are who has the problem and who is in a leadership position to, you know, to agree that this is a problem and a solution needs to be solved. You know, really, we should have, you know, two people basically making that decision and going ahead with it. Whereas right now, we've got countless boards, et cetera, that make that happen. And I understand why we have these boards as an industry, because it's public money, it's taxpayers' money at the end of the day. But at the same time, are we actually using taxpayers' money reasonably, where we're spending two to three months just to sign off on a small amount of funding, which could be between 50 and 100K to make some change happen. You know, what, what would passengers be happier about? The fact that you made your change happen really, really quickly or the fact that you spent two, three months discussing it and then agreeing to fund it um, or, or asking for, for the project to be tweaked and then making it go through that two to three month process again to, to reapply for funding, you know, which happens a lot. So I would say they're, they're, they're the big changes is frontline empowerment. And then the last change is basically is we need we need a fund in this industry for startups to be able to apply for and and raise capital against um, to be able to like you know stay in the industry and actually um, develop um, you know and, and survive in the industry you know and develop their solutions. Right now we don't have that. So what happens is basically we apply for grant funding. You know, and my organization does it as well. You know, we've we've won two grants in the last kind of, you know, um, three years. And those grants have been absolutely critical in terms of helping us with R&D costs to build products that we can then, you know, um, sell back to the to the industry. And we've only been able to do that be, because of these grants, They're because uh, private investors would not give us the money. Simple as that. Rail is too slow, not enough, not enough speed, too much bureaucracy, too much regulation. And, you know, I know angels and VCs would just laugh me at the door. So I've never even tried to raise money, you know. So to, to get that next generation of entrepreneurs coming in and staying in the industry, we need funding um, to, to help them, you know, survive and, and grow their business.
One thing I'm interested in is you talk about this sort of two to three month slog of trying to get a 50k pilot off the ground and endless different boards and, and the problem of consensus. Is compared to other industries that do it well, is it that our corporates are slower? and find it harder to make decisions? Or is it that other industries have more smaller companies on which you can rehearse innovation before scaling up a proven solution into a corporate? Which, which, which one is it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so uh, let's separate it out. The, the big issue in rail is because there is no private investment uh, to do R&D, and build a product and, and start selling it, we rely on money from either grants which come from Innovate UK, um, which are very hard to get. It takes a lot of time to apply for. And then we rely on money from the industry itself to help fund the R&D. So, you know, it's one thing that uh, you're trying to get a contract because you've got an existing product and it takes two to three months to go through the sales cycle. It's another thing to just even get, um, you know, to go through a two to three month process just to be able to actually um, get some money to build something. You know, and, and when I say two to three months, that's me being generous as well. You know, on average, it's, it takes about six months, or at least when we were starting out, it took us six months. Now, because we know the industry quite well, we know how to, you know, um, pull the right levers and speak to the right people, etc. It's, you know, it, it, it's about two to three months. Um, you know, but, but that's the, the big challenge is just to even get money to do something is two to three months, let alone, um, or six months, let alone even getting a sale. There's another, you know, six months uh, on top of that to try and get us to convert from doing, getting money for the R&D project to then actually getting a sale for a license agreement or, or anything of the sort. So, you know, so altogether you're looking at like 12 months of just waiting around before you get something. I mean, one of the things I, I, I find fascinating when I was founding Snap, it, on my, my initial management team, you know, Almost all of us, not quite all of us, but you know, certainly all of us with transport background, because we had a whole bunch of tech people in there as well. But all of us with transport background had come from Arriva. And I was thinking, why, why, why didn't we create this as a project within Arriva? Um, and the answer is, it would be inconceivable to create a project like Snap within Arriva. You just, or, or, or I suspect any transport corporate, I'm not singling, singling Arriva out here, because it, it would, you just couldn't get it done. You know, I was trying to do some projects in rail, which is where we met. And, I, and, and the the experience you describe is is one I'm very familiar with. Um, is that a is that a is that a, a transport corporate thing? Do you think, or a corporate thing? Mm. Um, I would say it's a corporate. It's a transport corporate thing, um, in the sense of because there is nowhere for uh, transport innovators, you know, specifically bus and rail, um, to get to get private sector funding. Uh, what it means is we have to rely on the corporates and, and the government bodies give us that funding. Yeah. And, and that's where the challenges is, you know, whereas in health, I don't, you know, if I was in health, I wouldn't need to speak to the NHS to give me the, the R&D money. I would just speak to a couple of investors who are interested in health and get the money from them. So that's the, that's basically the challenge is, you know, we, we have to get them, we have to convince them, um, convince the bus and the, and the train operators and the like to be able to just fund an interesting idea to see if it, if it will solve a problem, let alone to um, uh, fund the continued use of the idea. So I think, you know, that, that's why transport is unique. It's because we're, you know, the industry is funding both R&D and scale, um, i.e. rollout, as opposed to just rollout, which is what really, you know, the NHS, et cetera, um, funds. You know, if you go to the NHS, 
um, you're going to the NHS with a solution in hand because you've built one because you've managed to get the money from from the private sector to to do that. Um, it's very rare you can do that in rail unless you've got grant money um, backing you up. I wonder why Britain doesn't have specialist transport and mobility investment funds. There's one in Israel I can think of. Uh, there's several in the US I can think of. UK I can think of some corporates who have venture arms. You know, Jaguar Land Rover have a, have a venture arm. But I can't think of any specialist transport investment funds. And I wonder why Britain seems to not do this when other countries uh, do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, we... we... Oddly enough, we just we just can't give up control. I think that's the biggest issue. There are you know there are people or, or organisations in rail who just are holding on to to like the the innovation arm of rail, and you know they're used to doing innovation in a very uh, traditional waterfall top down manner. And as as a result, the it's just it's just very very difficult to work with these type of organisations as an innovator. Um, yeah, and not only are you trying to solve an impossible problem trying to also solve it by working with um, you know a very, working in a very very different way that you know is, is quite outdated frankly you know like even the even the NHS has started to look at things like agile and lean etc and I think that's the issue because we've got basically um uh, government backed innovation innovation kind of arms in, in rail and bus um, the top-down approach makes it very very difficult and that's why um, and it makes it difficult to innovate and that's why I think no one's really has set up like a VC fund for rail um, or like you know a VC fund for bus you know we and we have helped the industry set up innovation funds um, you know but they're not VC funds they're very very different um, and I think we'll probably not uh, you know I don't think we'd see we'll see one unless someone else comes into the industry uh, and puts their own money in, uh, you know, which which would probably be a bad idea, actually, if you ask me. Um, or if, yeah, if someone comes into the industry and puts their own money in, unless we are, unless there's really a big change in rail where basically, uh, you know, it, it's completely privatized or, or there's a new government-backed, you know, VC rail fund coming out. But I, I don't even know if we would want to set something out like that up. Um, you know, aside from myself and, and half of other people that I know who want to do it, but you know, just don't think it's a good. Don't wouldn't want to put the time and effort to be able to do something like that. Um, it just you know, it would be so difficult to try and get it off the ground. And a lot of what you've talked about sounds like it's about industry culture, and there's a sort of catch twenty two of getting the right people in, but the culture makes it hard for the right people to succeed, and you kind of have a circuit there. Is it also about industry structure? Is it is it the kind of nationalisation versus privatisation debate, or is it is, is it are there answers there or not? Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't think the structure is too much of an, an issue. You know, I, I'm I'm of the oak that rail can work and, and bus can work, either nationalised or privatised. We just need to pick one and let it thrive and keep improving on it. I, you know, what 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 we've got right now is this kind of whipping effect where where you know we whip to the left, we whip to the right, and then we don't we don't really get anywhere as a result because we're constantly changing the structure drastically. You know, I think small tweaks here and there to constantly improve the structure is definitely needed. But these big monolithic reviews and changes that we're, we're making, uh, you know, it, it takes a long time, several years, for the change to occur. And then it takes several years, for the, several years for the change to set in. And then by that time, you know, a new government comes in and makes another change happen. 
and we're, we're going back around in that circle. Um, you know, now Aguero is doing it, it's kind of a devolution kind of agenda, putting control back into the regions. Um, you know, over the last two, three years, they've been doing that under their near CEO. But actually, <laughs> um, 15, 20 years ago, it was all regionalized anyway, and, and there was too much duplication. So we decided to go for a central approach. So, you know, in the space of 20 years, we've just basically um, come back around full circle um, you know, and, and it's this type of constant uh, waggling left and right, which I think is, is is the actual issue, not decentralized versus, or sorry, not nationalized versus privatized or decentralized versus centralized. I think it's more just um, too, too, ironically, too much structural change is is not good. So basically, your message is: if you want change to happen, stop changing everything. <laughs> uh, change it, and then. And then focus and, and get on with it and, and do small micro changes uh, as opposed to big changes. But, but yeah, yeah, you're right, absolutely. Thomas. The, the sentiment is true. <laughs> so let me let me focus in on, on the Hack Partners and the Hackathons for a minute because you know, we met through one of your Hackathon events and I was just bowled over by the energy that you brought to those. How, how did you bring that energy into that? And you know, if, you, if you were talking to someone who wants to try and replicate that, what, what advice would you give them? Mm. Um. So in terms of advice um, that I would give them, um, well, I guess, you know, if it's about doing hackathons and energy for, for rail or bus, you know, I think ultimately you have to love it because, you know, not, not just hackathons, but also the industry. Because if you don't, then it's just not worth the pain of, of having to, to deal with a lot of the inertia and, and the, you know, the, the, the kind of like cultural challenges of the industry. So, you know, I, I recommend people that want to come into this industry, um, come in for the love and, and, and the desire to make change, not for the money and, and not for the glory because, you know, also, also obviously there is money in the industry and, and there is glory uh, it, you know, it's not it's not a it's not a walk in the park to to be able to kind of achieve that. Um, you know, and, and don't lose sight. You know, I think that's the biggest one. You know, remember why you're making that change. You know, if you're if you're coming in to make it easier for people to um, you know get home during the during the big delays by providing them alternate means of alternative means of transport, or if you're setting up a new bus company to make it cheaper compared to the existing ones, or if you're setting up a new railway company or whatever, you know, whatever that change is that you're trying to bring, don't lose sight of it. Um, you, you get caught up so much in the day-to-day of trying to make change happen, you you forget actually why are you trying to make it happen. Um, you know, and, and that certainly kept me kept me going over the years is reminding myself actually, you know, as as hard as it is to bring change in this industry, I'm, I'm doing it for the right reasons. So you started out on endless trains when you were um, organizing hackathons for Lee Stratford and you wanted to make them better. Do you, do you feel like you're, you're, you're achieving your mission? Yeah, uh, partly. I, I feel like I've, you know, and uh, not to glow or anything like that, but, you know, at the, at the end of the day, we have to recognize our own, our own impact and achievements as much as anything else. You know, I think we have done a really, really good job of putting innovation on, on, the, on the agenda you know, on a board level and on an industry level, you know, before, before we came in, no one, everyone just thought innovation was IT and, and that was it, you know, but, but now we've got innovation managers and, and, you know, innovation directors, et cetera. We've got countless innovation programs in the industry. Government has funded various innovation initiatives as well. You know, so we have, we have made a really good positive change there. And, that, and that's a cultural change, which is very hard to make. 
Um, you know, so I think we've done, we've done a good job there, you know, and also, um, we've, we've done a very, very good job when it comes to deploying technology into the industry. So things like, things like BusyBot, which, uh, which, um, you know, came out of one of, one of our hackathons, things like Hubble, um, you know, and, and a couple of other products that we've got in the market, you know, so we have made some good change. It's obviously nowhere near the amount of change I would have wanted to make five, six years into my journey. Um, you know, when I first started out, I would have expected to have completely flipped the industry by now and, and walk away, you know, um, head, hand held, head held high, thinking we've made a big, big change. You know, so it's, it's steps, right? It takes, it takes time to make change, basically. And I think we've made some good, good victories along the way, but there are always and should be more. What's your biggest regret of the last six years? Uh, regret, hmm. The biggest regret, I don't think I've really got many regrets, you know, over the last six years. I am here where I am today based on um, hard work, effort, and, and love and energy. Um, you know, and I, I think it would be a bit sad to say, oh, I've, I've kind of regretted something that I've that I've done. You know, everything I've done, it's it's happened, and you know, some made, made lots of mistakes. You know, made made some good good decisions and some bad decisions along the way. You know, I think uh, so. I wouldn't want to change anything because I, I am where I am at the end of the day, and it's you know, the only thing you need to do is look forward. Um, you know, but I would say my biggest learning is is probably is about finding the right people that that love what you do in this industry and continuing to just work with them and ignore and ignoring the naysayers, you know, and just letting, let, you know, and, and that's it, you know, so we've got a, a handful of really, really good key clients and champions that value our work and, and are, are creating a good impact as a result of working with us. And we've just, you know, doubled down on working with them instead of trying to like that we did at the start, which was convince um, people that just did not want to be convinced um, to work with us and to make change happen. So I think that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned is actually it's much easier to just work with the ones that do want to bring change compared to trying to convince the ones that don't. And what does the future look like for innovation and change in our industry, especially in the context of what's happened recently? In, in my opinion, it's just it's going to be a, a, a quite a tumultuous year due to COVID. You know, 2020 was obviously quite hard, but I think rail and bus did a, quite a good job just kind of biting through and and getting on with it. But the challenge now has been is that it's it's this pandemic and lockdown has lasted way longer than than, than pretty much most of us expected. And as as a result, you know, um, finances are being tight. You know, um, train operators aren't spending, infrastructure owners aren't spending, even even bus operators have uh, have got kind of like spending freezes as well. You know, and I, and I see that lasting all all throughout till the end of 2021, really. You know, until basically passenger numbers recover. So, you know, my, my advice to to innovators and entrepreneurs, you know, is is I hope you've already got some some money available, you know, from from either grants or um, etc. You know, and and don't intend to ask for for the money for you know to bus and train operators and such because I don't think they've got got too much to spare at this stage. So you know I would really recommend people apply for grants, etc. Um, you know, to, to kind of um, keep them keep them going for this year until until things come back around next year. Is the lack of resource going to mean that there's a greater impetus to innovate because you have to, or is the lack of resource going to freeze innovation out? Mm. Uh, I think it's going to do both. Which is a, which is a weird paradox to say, 
But I think some organizations are going to see lack of resource as a way of innovating. And some organizations are going to see lack of resource as a way of just stopping spend and stopping innovating and only switching it back on until until later. And, you know, I, it's, it's tough to tell which organizations are going to are going to do that from the outset if you're new to the industry. You know, really, you have to have a good network in the industry to know what, um, you know, how certain companies are, are basically reacting to COVID, um, which, which is a challenge, you know, because it's all about relationships, right? It makes it really difficult for newcomers uh, as a result. So I would encourage newcomers to do lots of research and, and keep, keep their ear to the ground to understand where the funding is um, within organizations and if there is funding, um, you know, and, and ask for a plain answer. You know, have you got budget for this or or should I come back to, you know, later on in the year and just see what people say? The hardest part is, is when you just keep trying to push a deal, assuming there is a budget and, and the buyer may not tell you um, because obviously they don't want to lose, lose, lose you and your interest as well. Um, you know, I would as a founder and entrepreneur, I would encourage everyone to just ask whether, you know, if there is money or not um, and focus on grant funds and, and the like, you know, in the interim. I've got two final questions. Um, for someone interested in innovation, um, do you have a kind of reading list? You know, is there a particular book or article or something you, you know, a, a TED talk or just something that you'd say, yeah, this is, this is something that's really influenced me that other someone else might want to look at. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think innovation is quite broad, right? Like if you're, if you're a startup on founder that's trying to make it, trying to, you know, get into the industry with, with some technology, then there's obviously relevant books for you. If you're an internal industry leader that wants to bring change, you know, um, from within their own organization, then I think there's probably different books as well. Um, certainly the one that has appealed to me the most, you know, from a, a startup founder perspective, um, I would say it's probably, Ben Horowitz's um, Hard Thing About Hard Things. Um, it's a book about basically the challenges that founders go through when setting up and, and scaling a business, basically. You know, and, it, and it really um, opens, opens, opens the door and gives you a very, very clear, clear view of, of just the absolute pain and, and terror that you're going to go through uh, of, you know, of running a company, whether as hiring, firing, sales, fundraising, um, you know, product development and the like, it, it covers all of it and it covers all of it really, really well. Um, I, I actually read it at the start of my journey in 2015. And um, because we were just starting out, a lot of what um, the book was talking about, I feel like didn't matter to me. You know, it talked about, um, how to deal with like hiring issues and you know how to like manage uh, you know product development teams etc and i thought oh i don't need any of that you know you know we're just like four people you know i just need to focus on like sales and growth that's it and then i actually read it again uh in 2019 so two years ago now and then i started reading and, and i and i realized oh wow all this stuff about hiring and and product management etc is incredibly useful i wish i bloody read it before before i started <laughs> before i started the journey and then i, I realized i did i just discount, i just disc discounted it because uh, i didn't think it was relevant to me um but yeah i would say that book is probably the best one to read for for a founder who's starting off and I continually read it i would say probably every two years you know just to just to kind of relearn what you've learned and may have forgotten 
I had exactly the same experience. Of, I mean, I, I read the Lean Startup before founding Snap. And you know, the, the, the early stages, um, I really absorbed and implemented. And we were, we were very successful in the early days. And we, we raised some great institutional finance. And we, we, we proved our product and grew. And the things that I then found hard subsequently were very similar. Hiring was easier. The firing bit was challenging. Um, and um, some of the product development um, challenges uh, were all in the book. But of course, they're the bits you you don't store in your mind at the beginning because you're going to need to come back to them later. One yeah. final question. I'm just fascinated to know you've got the best name of anyone I know. Um, where on earth did the name River come from? Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, put me on the spot here, actually, Thomas. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, you know, you know what? I, I, I've, I've, I really just share the story with friends more than anything else. Um, so, I, you know, I, obviously I grew up in Scotland um, you know, I was born in Pakistan, but I moved here when I was one, two or whatever. And, you know, grew up here as a result. Um, grew, grew up in Scotland. When I say here, I mean the UK. Um, Laos is still the UK. Um, you know, and uh, so my birth name is actually Tamura Beg, T-A-M-O-O-R, and then Beg, B-A-I-G. And, and basically, I just used to get into so many fights in, in primary school because of my name. And the reason for that is because... In, in Scotland, we, we pronounce it Tamur. So it's, you know, instead of Tamur, it's Tamur. And kids would just call me things like, you know, um, uh, tampon, Tampax or Tamagotchi. And I would just get very infuriated. And I would just constantly get into fights. And my nanny, who took care of me at the time, um, because both my parents were working, basically got fed up having to deal with me getting into fights all the time. So she just went to the school one day after I got into a really big fight and just said, why, why did this happen? You know, he says some kids keeps calling him names and the, and the teacher just told him, you know, what was going on. And my nanny just said, okay, right. From now on, um, you're going to call him river and nothing else. And if you call him anything else, I'm going to come in and break your legs. And I could just see, <laughs> yeah, I could just see my teacher's face. You know, one of them was modified and the, and the head teacher, she was just confused. She was like, what? She's going to break my legs? I need to call him River? What? And then and then she just sent me out of the room, spoke to them for another 10 minutes. And then the next day in in class when the, the register was happening, she the my, my, my primary school teacher just said River. And I, and I just didn't answer. I was just, you know, I was just going about my day waiting for my name. And then she, she yelled at a little bit louder again. And then I looked up and I realized, wait, that was me. So I raised my hand and it just stuck since then. And, you know, I went to high school, et cetera. Um, you know, I called myself over there and then eventually just legally got it changed because it was just too much hassle being known as one thing, but then, you know, legally having another name. Um, so I think I've, I've been river since I was like 18, 19 now. So just, just about, you know, uh, uh, legally I've been river for, for well, since 18, I, 19. Where, where on earth did you get the, um, where did you get the inspiration for the name from? Uh, I don't know. To this day, I've never asked her. <laughs> like, I, I haven't. I've just not. I've not asked her. Her name was Donna, and um, she was our nanny for like nine years. I think from like the age of four until about thirteen. You know, she just took care of me. And I never. I, you know, when you're young, you're just too dumb to even ask these type of questions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, but if I ever saw her in the street, the first thing I would ask is, "Oi, why'd you call me River?" <laughs> you know, see what she would say. That is absolutely superb. That is just brilliant. Fantastic. That was excellent. Thank you very much for taking part, River. I really, really enjoyed that no conversation. Thanks for having me on. Well, that concludes that. 
Thank you very much to River to Moorbeg for joining me for the Freewheeling Podcast, and thank you to you for listening. I'll be back next week with another edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. In the meantime, if you've got any feedback, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on the social channels at Thomas Abelman, or my email address is thomas at thomasableman.com. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.